Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat. We are in Parshat Shmini this morning, and we're going to be uh, in the first triennial part of that reading. So, but we're not we're not going to be at the very 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 beginning of it uh, because we're going to turn the first part deals with sacrifices and it deals with uh, the procedure for all of these different kinds of sacrifices the chatat the olah um, so it goes through as Leviticus tends to a repetition of the way the sacrifice is supposed to be done for each one and this is about uh, Aaron's sons bringing him the blood of the sacrifice and then him dipping his finger in it and dashing blood on the side of the altar. This is formulaic for each one of the different kinds of offerings. We're, we're at the you know climax of the whole tabernacle business, which was the consecration of the tabernacle, its apertures, and, uh, and Aaron's sons and the rest of the Levine, right? So it's about consecrating Aaron and his sons to the priesthood and consecrating the Mishkan and its tools itself. Um, and that's like the huge major festival time, right? They have this huge party. They have this huge, amazing set of rituals. It's just this, the climax of everything. The Mishkan's going to function. God's presence is going to descend. You know, a special fire from God comes down to consume the sacrifices. And like everybody can go, oh, yeah, like it worked. Right? You know, when they plug in those huge stage sets, you know, for things like, you know, um, I don't know, the Oscars, you know, whatever. And like somebody plugs it in and it's like, woohoo, it works, right? So this whole idea that the climax is God's fire descends and burns up the sacrifice and, and everything is good. It's all working. Everybody's like, yes. And then we get page 620, chapter 10. We get this episode right next to this amazing, you know, climax of the tabernacle and all of the sacrifices that were altered, uh, altered, that were offered. And then we have this episode. So, um, so we're gonna we're gonna look at it. We're gonna look at what in the heck uh, is going on here. So somebody begin reading at. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now Aaron's sons, Nadav and Abihu, each took his fire pan, <coughs> fire in it, and laid essence on it, and they offered before Adonai alien fire, which had not been enjoined upon them. And fire came forth from Adonai and consumed them. Thus they died at the instance of Adonai. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what Adonai meant by saying, through those near to me, I show myself holy and gain, glo- and gain glory before all the people. And Aaron was silent. All right. That's incredibly yep. difficult. difficult. <laughs> really difficult. It's like uh, uh, Moses' wife on the way to uh, Egypt with the... Uh, 
that mysterious uh, thing that came to attack somebody and where does it come from? Where's what is going on here? So it's troubling, right, that at the height of all this festivity, the fire from God comes down and it accepts the sacrifices of the people. Everything's groovy. And then we get this this very disturbing episode. So Aaron Aaron's the high priest. His sons serve as the priests. <clears throat> so Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, right? So those are the two sons who are the older sons who are serving as priests. Each took his fire pan. You take a fire pan. Then you have to put something in the fire pan that is hot if you're going to lay incense on it. Because incense, of course, has to be turned into smoke. for the off- That's the offering. The offering is the smoke. The offering is the smell. So you have to put fire in the fire pan to lay incense on it. So each took his fire pan, put fire in it, and laid incense on it. And they offered before yud heh vav What did they offer? Alien fire. Alien fire. What is that? Different from what's accepted. Okay, so already, here are how many interpretations of this we have around the room. So alien... Fire. H zara is the Hebrew. Zara, strange, alien. In a regular sacrifice, what do we have? We have, in the description of the Mishkan, we have certainly fire. Familiar. Familiar fire, maybe. Or the fire that goes forth from God to consume the sacrifices. There's fire. So H, fire doesn't seem to be the problem. H is expected. H, fire is part of both the incense offering and the, and the, the one on the altar, the animal. If you have to have the H. The H is the way the sacrifice gets offered. The way it's turned into smell, in the case of the animal, of fat, and smell in terms of the incense, you know, of the great aromatic and very rare and expensive, you know, so they didn't smell that often because it was so expensive. So, so the fire is the agent that makes whatever the substance is kind of do become something that can go up. So fire is essential. So H doesn't seem to be the issue. What seems to be the issue is Zara, alien. <clears throat> How do you say service to God? Avodah. How do you call idolatry? Avodah Zarah. Alien service. Alien worship. There's something about this Zarah, right, that means it is not worship of yud heh vav that is appropriate. So Avodah Zarah is clearly idolatry. So what, or some kind of, not even idols, but, you know, meaning non, not kosher worship or service. So if Avodah Zarah is, is that, then what makes this Aish Zarah bothers the rabbis? Right? So they understand Aish Zarah is bad. Because Avodah Zarah, we know, is the most terrible thing you can do. 
one of the most terrible things you can do is, right, worship that is betraying, you know, the the relation, the exclusive relationship of Yudhei Vavhei to Israel. If you step outside that relationship, that's treason. So, so they understand Avodah Zarah as being totally horrific. But what? And so Eish Zarah must be terrible too. They can even accept that. The rabbis can even say, okay, Eish Zarah is terrible. It's pagan fire. You know, it's like idol worship fire. Okay, we get it that that would be punishable probably by death. For God's priests to step outside, you know, of the Israelite cultic system would be punishable by death, of course. But what makes it zara? That bothers the rabbis. And it bothers us, right? Like, they don't seem to think of it as anything other than worshiping Yudhei It says they offered it before Yudhei So they weren't offering it to Isis. That that would make it Eish Zara for sure, right? So so the rabbis are very disturbed by why what makes it Zara. So give me some give me some ideas. What might make it Zara, Mickey? It could be um, a mini or major revolt against authority at the time. And how would it be a revolt against authority? Well, this is part of the firstly. Uh, Rules, laws, this is the way it is, there's no question about it. And here, you've got these two young folks. Uh, what makes you uh, the ultimate answer? You know, we, 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 want it, we want our views to be accepted. So, we want to make changes, and we want to. So, they stepped outside of the prescribed laws. How do we know that? Tell me. Which had not been enjoined upon them. Which had not been enjoined upon them supports Mickey's reading. You do not, as a priest, get to do interpretive dance instead of lighting the menorah. You must follow exactly the procedures because we know what happens when you don't. We've seen it. Right? You... They are charged with protecting the sancta, and that includes the ritual order of things. It was not enjoined upon them. They took it upon themselves. This is a breach of what God specifically has asked them to do, which is serve <coughs> under Aaron and to serve in the sanctuary according to the prescribed rituals that we have seen in how much detail? Still, they were kids. They may not have known any better. So they were kids. How do we know they were kids? We don't. So she's arguing, what if they're really young and don't know any better? So This is extremely difficult for people in our branch of Judaism. Because we do it all the time. We create new rituals. We accept new ways. And that's part of what has kept Judaism alive. So... But it's I just, I, you know how I deal with this? I just uh, I kind of it. Right. Say, say it again, Sarah. I kind of ignore it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's sort of a sidetrack of uh, traditionalism that is not applicable to the way I view my Judaism. And, you know, that's probably very alien 
to most Jews, but that's where I... All right, so, so one of the ways we deal with this is we say, okay, this is just a whole other system that we just totally don't even recognize you know, as being anything like the kind of meaning and attachment to the divine that we understand, which is all about innovation. It's all about reconstruction. It's all about, you know, the emerging, you know, ways of exploring that relationship. So that is absolutely 100%, I think, how most of us, you know, approach these episodes. I want us to suspend, you know, I was an English major, so, you know, willing suspension of disbelief. (laughs) So we, if we can willingly suspend our contemporary Western mind, I'd like us to just enter into what's going on here um, in some ways that are interesting. There's some interesting things that are going on here that I do think have something to say to us today about our relationship to religion and ritual and, and all that stuff, and, and we'll get there. So just, I completely agree. That's what we mostly do. Is, yeah, whatever. It's not it's not us. Um, and for just this time, if we can like kind of step out of that and just kind of enter this world and kind of maybe see what's going on because I think we tend to read over it. We don't really enter into what's really happening. What's the real message here? Well, you say this is at least to me when I read this, it's like one of the two poles of Judaism, in the sense that we have this, which is it's got to be done in a certain way because God said do it that way, way way back when, and then we have the other pole that you were talking about, and throughout the history of Judaism. It wandered back and forth between these poles and you had many people in different places. We, nevertheless, who sometimes reject got to be done this way, we create other customs that we say have got to be done this way. So people, I think part of what this is saying is people need to do things a certain way sometimes and they need to have standards. And this gets back to the question always to me is, does it matter? Is it just whatever or are there certain ways and are there standards? And that's how I at least can read some meaning so, into this. So this is, right, so this is the way we can kind of step out of our Western kind of what, you know, and say there are timeless themes here being explored. Authority, authority, respect for authority, that is absolutely still relevant. That they offered what they, they didn't, the, the, a lot of, the, you can imagine how much rabbinic literature there is on this, right? So one of the rabbinic answers is they didn't check with Aaron. If they were young, they should have checked with Aaron before entering the whole, before going into the sanctuary with the sancta. We know if you don't even cover the ark and you touch it, you're dead. If you offer something out of order, you're dead. To Linda, you're dead. You're dead. So it's it's a nuclear power plant. And if you are not in your proper gear and doing things in the proper order, it is just the nature of nuclear fission that human flesh will disintegrate. That is how they understood this. It wasn't a punishment like God is angry and says, uh-oh, I'm now going to kill you. It's this is what happens when the priests who are charged with guarding the sancta mess up. It's just what Nobody's saying somebody's bad if there's a nuclear leak and everybody dies. No, nobody's, it's not a punishment. It's just, you didn't, you weren't careful and that force is unleashed in ways that are destructive to human beings. So even if they didn't know what they were doing, that's what they caused. So they didn't check with Moshe, they didn't check with Aharon. 
So some of us as parents might want to say, so where the heck was Aaron? Why were they in the precinct? Nobody saw them. Nobody caught them. What? What? That is a nuclear facility. Really? Nobody's at the door. So to that, you know, what is is what they screwed it up, and the consequence is what it is. So then we have to start asking, who's, you know, where does some responsibility lie for the fact that? They had access and didn't know what to do. If they didn't know what to do and had access, that's a problem. That's on somebody. If they did know and did it anyway, that's that's on them to some extent. Aaron would have said no anyway. What? Aaron would have said no. So you're, so you're saying that's why they didn't check with him. Right. All right, so that's one interpretation is they didn't check with him because they knew what he would say. No Christmas tree in the living room, absolutely not. Go ahead. I mean, I had this question last year, actually, uh-huh. um, because it always bothered me. I have friends, dear Israeli friends, who named one of their sons Nadav. Mm-hmm. Why do you name your son Nadav? I had no idea. And I asked this question. I don't know what it was. You were rabbi. We didn't study this text last we year know with we me. Did, but I did ask somebody. And, and, and the response that I heard was that Nadav and Abihu were so enthusiastic, so much full of love, for Adonai, and they wanted to show him so much love and, and devotion that they just went ahead and did this. It was their enthusiasm. It was just what carried them forward. And that, that is, we're yeah. going to get there. Okay. That is absolutely one reading, and we're going to go there. That's where Shefa goes. That's ah, where Shefa Gold goes. That's it's ex- wonderful. It's exactly where she goes. <laughs> um, and, and so we're going to see what she says the consequence of that is, yeah, well, which is very different from punishment. For her, so so that's why I'm saying if we can just hold it, there's a lot yeah. here that we can get to. When you say consume, uh, that that's also when you 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 get into that space where you, is isn't that what we're after? Yeah, I mean. So let's uh, so let, let, let's let's work our way through it. Let's work our way through it, Sarah. This relates to adolescents and their parents, <laughs> and since. Thank God, I'm way past it. <laughs> I can see where the enthusiasm, the initiative, the joy of living and wanting to imitate their father, but even go beyond, could have been a very positive thing. So, And can have devastating consequences yes, when they true. don't understand their limitations. They don't understand why the rules are in place to begin with. The thought of my child behind the wheel of a car, can I just tell you right now? I don't know why no one before me as a parent has figured this out. That if you don't let them drive till they're 32, the problem goes away. I just don't understand why nobody's figured that out. So, right, a 16-year-old behind the wheel of a killing machine it's like it's the stupidest thing we do as a society, if you ask me. They should be 21 before they're allowed to drive a car. What we know about the frontal lobes now, 25, 26 is when they should be behind a several-ton machine going 60 miles an hour, right? So what I'm saying is the there are rules, and if my child breaks the speed limit, she doesn't understand the consequences, of that when she takes a turn with little experience going 60 miles an hour. And so it is an ongoing theme, right? This is an ongoing, timeless 
absolutely timeless thing the Torah is looking at here, I think. This is the way they expressed it biblically. It's this tension between the young, enthusiastic, why do we need these rules? I get what this is about and I love it. My dad loves it. I want to be like him. But I have, so we're going to offer another one. And they don't understand the consequences, even though they've been told. And tragic results happen. We, how many memorials do we see all around the Palisades, right. you know, for, for people killed? I mean, it's not just cars. I'm just saying, you know, like guns or you know whatever else that they get their hands on and don't know how to use. And um, and tragic things happen. And I think Torah is exploring the the very real understanding that young, even exuberance, is very dangerous if it's not mitigated. Linda. And it's not only young. I mean, you know, yes. Yes. Yes, I think you're exactly. So, which is which is one of the timeless religious questions also, you know, that this raises, which is exuberance and and saying, "Oh, I get it." And so exuberantly creating whatever can sometimes lead to blowing planes up. This is why for me this is a relevant text. You can't just because you decide you get it and you know, and you're on fire, and you're impassioned, and you're ready to go worship in the way that you think is appropriate, it can result in serious loss of life. And it is a, it's a warning. So, you know, thinking about the two poles that Bert mentioned before, they're both relevant, and even if we don't, as Reconstructionists, follow the letter of that law, it certainly uh, gives rise to uh, conversation and how would we interpret it today. That's, I guess, what it would be all about, the conversation there and how it's relevant to us now. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, we still do. We don't like three Shabbat candles. Yeah. <laughs> we do have a sense that there are certain things that you do most of the time we don't. The other, we do have a sense that there are certain things that you do certain ways. The other thing I was going to mention is we are really shocked by the idea that these people died. Because for us, die is like the biggest, worst punishment. But I want to make two comments about that. One is, I don't think there are any jails back then. Certainly not mentioned in the Torah. When we look at how you know, at punishment for things, well, you put the person in jail. They didn't have jails. So... To me, when they say die, it's a way of saying this is very, very, very important. And later the rabbis abolished, pretty much abolished capital punishment. It's a way of saying how serious it is. Look at all the things in the Torah that it says you should die, you're going to die. All right, I want to stop right there, though. insulting your parents. I want to stop right there. We keep using the word punishment and killed. That is not what the text says. Sometimes it's put them to death. I totally get it. Capital punishment. That is not what this says. What does this say? A fire went forth from yud heh vav and consumed them. What does it say about when the sacrifice was laid on the altar? And a fire went forth from yud heh vav and consumed them. Do you, I want us to really see that that is exactly parallel. 
So did they become a sacrifice? That's why I want to walk through it. So, um, right? Because that is that is different from capital punishment, which is fine in Torah. Like there are times that absolutely it's fine. This is different, and I want us to stay with the difference because because it brings up, I think, a deeper understanding of what's actually happening because it doesn't seem that it's a punishment. It seems that they have triggered a consequence. Okay, wait, wait, stop. Carol. A consequence that potentially brings them closer to God. So we're going to, yes. Okay, okay. Let's stop. Yes, okay. So, wow, I did not expect this this morning. Yeah, happy birthday. I know, it's good, it's good, it's good. I didn't expect quite so much excitement about it. Okay, so so we've been dealing with what makes it zara, right? And now we've 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 talked about the fact that we've got aish offered by the kohanim, and then we have this aish zara offered by them. In each case, this is what I was trying to get at. In each case, there is a consuming fire. Here we have a sense that what is going on is avodah, right? The service that God commands. Over here, we have a sense that what's going on is, in some way, avodah zarah. So, but they look, actually, a lot alike, right? So these are the priests, and this is not avonavihu. On this side, but but everything that's kind of going on is similar, and the priests also are going to offer incense, right, on the altar. So in each case, incense is involved. High school incense. Is that different from the the, the smells or the odors that the burning sacrifice gives? I don't think so. I mean, it's, it, that's what God gets. God gets the odor, the reach nicholach, the pleasant odor of both of those. Um, but the other thing is that um, when you have incense, incense produces something different than just the smell. What else does it produce? Smoke. Smoke. It produces a cloud of smoke. Oh, that's confusing. <clears throat> That's confusing. Ah! <laughs> because, because the cloud of smoke hurt. I mean, less out of So when when this cloud of smoke happens, this is the only way, by the way, that the high priest can enter the Kodesh Kedoshim, the Holy of Holies, on Yom Kippur. The the Holy of Holies must be filled with the cloud of smoke. So, so that is a good thing in general, right? That you have this cloud of smoke, and when that happens, the people are in that ritual forgiven. Yes? They are, atonement is made for the people with this whole business on Yom Kippur. So, to, so there are, Outside of the priests, there are how many tribes? Outside of the Levim? Eleven. Eleven. 
Eleven. How many spices are involved in the incense? Eleven. Eleven. Right? So there's there is an idea that it is a unification. The purpose of the ritual, the purpose of Abodah, is to unify the people. If the priests are serving on behalf of the people to unify them and to do keruv, to do a drawing close between that unified people and the divine. That's the purpose of service. It's the purpose of what I do to some extent. It's to unify the community and intensify the relationship between the community and the divine. That is the goal of service. So that is, so the people are represented, let's just say, by the 11 different kinds of incenses. Some commentators want to indicate that part of what makes it zarah is in the reading of the Hebrew where each took his fire pan. It was not the fire pan of the sanctuary. And each took Esh Zarah, the Zarah means it was not from the altar. They took it from their own, you know, regular or whatever source they took it from, and each brought it on his own. That it became about them as individuals. And when Avodah becomes about the servant and not about the people's relationship with God, when it becomes about me, it is no longer this, it is this. Mickey. Um, in as late as 2,000 year ago level, uh, private homes had incense burners. And even to this day, uh, uh, people burn incense. But, but uh, even in, in individual homes, they had, uh, they had this... Uh, very rare, but uh, dug up uh, incense burners. Hmm? So I don't know if that has a relationship. Well, that, that's the yeah. point of the scholars, is right. they took, you know, it was a common thing, so that they took theirs, their fire pan, not, they didn't go and, and, and perform the duties of the sanctuary with the sanctuary pan. They, they took the one from their own home. And so they were coming before God with incense as an individual. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is even the everything everything looks the same. The consuming fire comes forth, you know, the incense, the fire, the it pans, everything looks the same except this. The zarat. So so there's several places I think the Torah has something to teach us today about zarat. That the behavior can look exactly the same, but the intention, the motive, the motive thank you, Reuben, is absolutely critical to whether or not it results in forgiveness and a return of the people into right relationship with God or, you know, destruction and devastation and death and, and tragedy. Blanche? Uh, I want to share with you that my daughter Kate, in her business, was asked to 
work with two women from our congregation mm-hmm. who have a program to work with the teenagers at Pally to teach them about driving, to teach them about the consequences of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And when Rabbi Reuben heard this, he whipped out his checkbook and wrote a check mm-hmm. to start the program off. I think they may have concluded the work they've done here and gone Gail Schoenbaum, one of our congregants, is the one who helped. Uh, she's a producer, and she produced the video, and they do this whole production with kids where they go into high schools, and they train kids for two days uh, to participate and adults to participate, and, and then they stage a car accident with one of the teenagers, complete with EMTs and fire trucks and blood and... Um, and the teenager writing a letter to their parents about, I'm so sorry that I died, basically. So they, they dramatize for the kids, you know, the, the very real consequences. Um, yes, Linda? Um, I'm just thinking, um, by the way, my son gets his driver's license on April 7th. I'm just thinking when you said suspension of disbelief, Amy, and So, but what if... I don't think they should be killed, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a transgression. Yeah, right. No, we would know, know that that was like, the community was feeling something that the child or the teenager maybe wasn't mature enough to understand needed to be left at that moment. Like, that's how... So let me, let me read to you for a moment. Nadav and Avihu were so overjoyed by God's acceptance of the sacrifices that they decided to add another offering. Their enthusiasm and excitement led them to instinctively perform deeds without contemplating their desirability and taking the proper precautions. The awesome love of God that Nadav and Avihu possessed overshadowed their fear of God. This imbalance, the overflowing of love, unchecked by the restraining influence of the fear of God, led to the sin of Nadav and Avihu. In contrast to the ecstatic, frenzied states characteristic of modes of worship in Eastern religions, the worship of God as prescribed by the Torah (coughs) warns against loss of control. Love must always be accompanied by the fear of God. It is the combination of the two which creates the desirable state of mind necessary for a close relationship with God. The biblical system is coming to say love and enthusiasm is all very lovely. That is all fantastic. And there has to be guidelines within which we express that because otherwise it can get so crazy. Like I said, that airplanes can fall out of the sky. In your love and exuberance to express, you know, whatever, you can do things that are not productive for the community. 
taking off one's clothes and going into an ecstatic state, for instance, and it's, it's not necessarily productive. It may, maybe someone's way of expressing their joy and enthusiasm, the community doesn't necessarily benefit from that, right? So, um, so I think the one of the teachings is we are always moving within, like Bert said, there, there's there are poles. In in when we talk about this in uh, professional Jewish life, we talk about keva versus kavana. The keva is the fixed service, the fixed liturgy, the fixed rituals, the prescribed, if you want to say that, even by us, by the community, rituals that not everybody rushes and takes out the Torah, then we have rules. And there's also kavana, the things that we do in worship that are out of our love and our enthusiasm and our devotion and our intention. And those might look very different from what normally um, happens. So, for instance, many synagogues now, you know, have chanting, you know, as part of their practice, you know. 50 years ago, it would have been, you know, like people would have flipped out. We're not flipping out about that anymore, right? So that would have been way over on this side of Kavana, you know, 50 years ago. No, no, not so much. Right? It's, it's almost becoming Keva in some communities. It's becoming part of the fixed expression. The normative fixed Shabbat liturgy experience includes chanting. And I don't mean chanting Torah. I mean chant as a spiritual practice. Um, on this point... <laughs> There's certainly the spectrum of what what is the bare minimum that makes you Jewish, right? Why can we go to a service at another synagogue and feel not completely foreign? Like you, you know, there's going to be the Shema, right? What else, you know? And in some ways, I wonder to what extent we progressive Jews who get rid of a lot of the stuff or don't don't get rid of, but we don't really, we're not strict in following stuff, need Orthodox Jews to keep those strict things going so that we at least know, have a reference point back to, oh, okay, this is what the bait, this is what the fundamentals were. Now, certainly stuff that, you know, developed in the 18th century, I'm not saying everything, but certain fundamentals that we don't keep going. If you eat shrimp or whatever it is, how much do we as progressive Jews kind of need people who are really strict to, so we always know, well, that's, that's what I, that's what I'm not doing, as opposed to just, it's gone. What if it were all gone? So, this is actually something that comes up a lot. And I'm not suggesting this is what you're saying, but take what you're saying to the extreme and what I hear, and I'm not saying you're saying that, but the idea there that some people take to the extreme is we need orthodoxy because it's authentic mm-hmm. fundamentals of practice, and the rest of us are doing some other version, you know, like we're going off in these other ways, and we really need it to stay, we need them to keep us rooted and to keep it perpetuating the, the fundamental part. And so... I struggle with that a lot because I think it, it judges the other forms in a way that says they are not authentic. And I wonder, do we wish the temple still stood so we could react to the fundamentals of biblical cult practice? That's the real. That's the right. real thing. Right. That's the real fundamentalism. Right. So or, or always, you know, basic. It's always a struggle to figure out what is what is essential to being Jewish. Is it lighting candles? Is it Shabbat? Is it Praying every day at every time. 
You know, where do we start to let go of certain things? Is it separating men and women? Well, where did that come from? So it would take, like you said, it's going back to the temple. So how do we know what is keva, <laughs> what is not going to get us consumed, and what is evolved? So, what a great <laughs> setup. Um, Mordechai Kaplan, <laughs> the founder of Reconstructionist Judaism, <laughs> would say... Um, he really, this was the, the basic question of his life, right? It, living in the modern world, living in America, he, you know, his whole reference was Europe, you know, and um, he really believed, this is why he, he didn't create, his students made him create another movement, was because he, they really felt that his teaching was that the only source for how do we know is the Jewish people. The Jewish people will decide. I thought you were going to say Torah. Mm -hmm. The Jewish people will decide in every generation what of Torah now defines what is Jewish. And he was so radical and so ahead of his time, which is why he was ostracized by so much of the, you know, of the world, and why we're still looked at as, you know, heretics on so many levels. Um, he was radical enough to say, and we have no idea what that's going to look like in the future. People could be standing on their heads with incense between their toes, you know what I mean? Like singing Kumbaya, and that will be authentic Judaism 300 years from now. Mm -hmm. Margo, is that troubling to you on some level? <laughs> she was like laughing. Wait, wait, no, let, let me finish. So, right, right, right. So, so right now, those things that make us nervous, that are on the fringe, you know, that's already happening, um, that make us go, oh, what, where's it all going? Mordechai Kaplan believed he could trust the Jewish people with their texts, with their practices, with their development of practice, with their relationship to tradition. As it evolves, he believed authentic Judaism was whatever the Jewish people in their time and their place decide through their own experience of a relationship with the divine and a relationship back to this text. As long as those things are there, he really trusted the Jewish people. Not a lot of professionals do. And I mean that. Jewish professionals do not trust the Jewish people with the tradition. So it's top down everywhere else. Kaplan was bottom up, and that made the whole Jewish professional world extraordinarily nervous and so anxious that they burned the 1945 Reconstructionist prayer book in the streets. Burned books. Jews burned prayer books. Think about that for five seconds. That's how nervous that idea made the Jewish world. And so for me, it takes great courage to say we can be trusted with the tradition, right? And that means we have to trust our children and grandchildren. What Kaplan was deeply worried about, as are all of us Reconstructionist rabbis and teachers, what he was most concerned about wasn't what it would look like, it's will they care? Will they know the traditions enough, the texts, the philosophy, the changing experience of the Jewish people over time? Would they know enough about that? Would they care enough about it 
to create a vibrant, dynamic, evolving Judaism. And that keeps a lot of us up at night. Yes, Mickey? In advocating change, he he advocated change in a sense of uh, uh, keeping out of the the, uh, basic teachings of Judaism. No, you make change out of knowledge and not out of ignorance. That's what I was saying about relationship to the text, to the tradition, to the evolving experience of the Jewish people. He didn't think it should just be made up whole cloth out of something else. But but he was concerned that Jews wouldn't know, that Jews wouldn't study, that Jews wouldn't take it seriously. Kushner says, who was a student, by the way, of Kaplan, um, Harold Kushner says there are only two kinds of Jews. I don't want to hear any reform, conservative, Mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. There are two kinds of Jews. Serious and not serious about knowledge, about knowing, about being grounded in any kind of sense of of what it means to be Jewish. As we've assimilated uh, less and less Jewish education so that we make up uh, a lot of our traditions out of a uh, lack of knowledge. Correct. And not knowing what to do. Correct. If I'm correct, wasn't it Kaplan who said the past should have a vote but not a veto? That's right. But he did say have a vote. You bet. And you better know the tradition in order to know what it would vote. And the second, addressing what Laura said, kind of coming at it from a different direction, so many of us get so disturbed about endangered species, about plants being killed, and they don't exist anymore, about animals being killed and they don't exist anymore. And you say, why? What's the body? They say, well, who knows what secrets there could be? Who knows what we could learn from that? And to me, when we look at the Jewish tradition, and I think this is what Laura was getting at, is it's the same kind of thing. You know, if we let something die, then, I mean, die entirely, Maybe there's something in there for us. Maybe there's something a future generation. Maybe that's why texts are so important, because they preserve it. But Judaism, text is important, but it's also people. It's what's in their heart and what they do. And so keeping some of these things alive uh, is important from that standpoint, because you never know. I found in my life things that were totally meaningless to me when I was 15 or 20 or 25 or 30 or 35 or 40, and I won't go any farther, became a lot more meaningful to me as I got older and I was so happy that the resource was still there, that I could go back and then I tapped things that when I was a lot younger, it just meant nothing to me. And so for, now it's incredibly rich. For a lot of us, the, the I, would, I would say 100% mean, let me turn one of your phrases a little and it's completely what I believe is what's most important is that the conversation stay alive. The conversation between the Jewish people and its history, experience, you know, and all of that, the conversation, if that doesn't stay alive, the world 100% loses whatever perspectives, whatever ideas, whatever contributions our own unique history would bring to bear on today's conversation. And I don't mean the history speaking. I mean history speaking through our dialogue with it. Okay, one, two, three. That's mm-hmm. uh, amazing. To me, Nadav and Avihu sort of seem like reconstructionists. They decided that um, you know we don't need one central fire. We have great fires. We want to participate. They seem like modern-day reconstructionists. I don't think what they did was so bad. Okay. The importance of uh, knowledge and being serious 
I think can be exemplified with a little story of the guy who went to the rabbi and said, Rabbi, I'm an atheist. And the rabbi said, hmm, have you studied Torah? Well, not very much. Have you looked at the Talmud? Talmud? No. On and on. Answers always negative. And the rabbi said, I'm happy to tell you you're not an atheist. You're an <laughs> <laughs> you it takes a certain amount of knowledge to say I'm an atheist, doesn't it? <laughs> right? Otherwise, you're speaking out of a certain kind of ignorance. I think it's a great, very Jewish story. Sarah? Two things. One is that Heinrich Heine said that uh, where books are burned, people will be burned. Mm-hmm. It's pretty prophetic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And I think Laura's question is just magnificent. And the way I come at that is that the Jewish people consist of so many different personalities that that's why we need orthodoxy and everything in between orthodoxy and where I am because we have different needs, not only at different ages, but because we're different people. So having a range of Judaism is a great smorgasbord. <laughs> and that's why it's a great thing. You know, I, I, I respect uh, orthodoxy, though I could never live it. And uh, I know it's necessary for some people. And I love the movie about uh, the woman who marries the brother, you know, it's called The Void, Fill the Void. You know, I can can get with that, Mm -hmm. though I, I wouldn't live it. Right, so that we have, as a people, we have a history, and this I would include this in our history and in our what's normative for us is that we have a difference of expression and a difference of opinion, right? That that we've always been a people that has really appreciated um, that that there's a difference of need, a difference of uh, of opinion. Pam, I'm kind of looking at the getting away from the shot level, looking at the word zara as our ego, and. Uh, that there's God's laws, spiritual laws, and a path, and then there's Pam's way that my ego telling me, you know, I'm going to do this, and I, and sometimes they intersect, and when they don't, uh, when I go with Pam's program, that's always when I get burnt, you know, it never works out well. So, so this goes, you know, back to what Ruben was saying earlier about what's the motivation, right, of the service exactly that you know if it's if it's for me. Um, then somebody's going to get burned, yeah. um, particularly in this story because of their position. They were the sons of the high priest. So it's one thing for an average Israelite to go do what they might or might not do. The, the sons of the high priest entering the absolute most holy place is a whole nother level of my ego taking over. Do you know what I mean? It's at a... So, you know, imagine the president of the United States, who has nuclear codes, starts making decisions out of what's best for him or out of his enthusiasm that is not related to something else. It's that kind of um, level that we're talking about. You know, there's... 
a little bit to the side. I know in the past we've talked about the relationship of different groups of lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. Did I talk about a relationship between Zara and Sarah? No. I didn't think so, but... Zara's a sin and Zara's a zion. So it sounds to us very similar, but so good listening, but no. Do we have time to talk about and Aaron was silent? Yeah. So funny you should ask, Laura. Let's look at the commentary of Rabbi Rami Shapiro, which is on the first page that I gave you. A fire came forth from Yudhei Vavhei and consumed them. Is this, oh, sorry, it's down like a little halfway through the page, yeah? Is this a literal fire? Is Yudhei Vavhei a thing that can spew forth flame? No. What we are dealing with is this. Nadav and Abihu were so overcome with emotion as they worshipped their God that they fell victim to their own exuberance and died in the heat of religious frenzy. Their behavior has parallels in our own days. Religious fanatics are capable of inflicting all kinds of suffering upon themselves and others in the name of their God. The Torah is warning us against this very fanaticism. And by making the sons of Aaron the protagonists of the tale, Torah is saying that no one is immune from religious excess. There is a place for religion in our lives, an important place, but it must be kept in its place lest it lead to destruction. This is what Yudhei meant. Moses shows no remorse over the death of nephews or compassion for the suffering of his brother. Instead, he merely underscores the message of the story. Yudhei is not a benign power, but like the ocean or electricity, a power with the ability to both enhance life and bring death. The fact that he is so stoic in his response to Nadav and Avihu's deaths suggests that this is more a polemic against religious excess than a story about family tragedy. Laura, read now. And Aaron was silent. (laughs) The passage can also be translated, and Aaron held his peace. Both translations yield insight. The first refers to the natural response of mourners facing the death of a loved one. The deepest response to death and tragedy is silence. Silence plays no games. Silence in its own way speaks to the absurdity of life. Silence alone allows us to accept the reality of our ignorance. We do not know why there is suffering, evil, pain, and death. We cannot justify God and should not be called upon to uphold a faith. We must be allowed our pain and our grief. We must be allowed our science. Silence. Aaron did not attack God nor excuse him. He did nothing that would take the attention away from the horror of what had just happened. God had just killed two of his priests. True, we could argue that it was their own exuberance that did them in, but from the point of view of their father, this is no consolation. They sought only to worship their God, his God, and they died for their love. There is no why. There is only silence. And in that silence, there is a great indictment of God's compassion. In Aaron's silence, there is a tearing away of the facade of love and a laying bare of the truth. Yudhei is the source of life and death, good and evil. Yudhei kills as well as births. Those who speak of God as love only do not know Yudhei <coughs> Those who know Yudhei do not speak at all. Laying those who know Yudhei Vavhei do not speak at all. Vayidom Aharon. Aharon was silent. Why? Because there's nothing to say. 
when one confronts the absolute ultimate reality, as Rabbi Rami Shapiro would explain it, capital R, when you confront reality particularly through the death of a loved one, <laughs> there's nothing to say. But let's go on to this this next piece, because he, he, he can also, as he said, translate um, the text uh, is that he held his peace. And Aaron held his peace. This is not the same as keeping silent. For in his realization that Yudhe kills as well as enlivens, Aaron maintained his shalom, his inner harmony, his peace. Not that the death of his sons did not devastate him as a father, but that he now knew that death and life are intimate partners in Yudhe dance. He saw in the death of his sons the great truth, reality itself. In the death of Nadav and Avihu, he knew Yudhe to be all that is beyond life and death, the all that encompasses life and death, the one for whom life and death are all part of the way that is its own justification, capital I. And with this awakening, Aaron was free to grieve without losing his peace. So he goes on to say, I've talked with hundreds of people who have experienced the death of a loved one, and most tell me that even as they grieve, they sense a deeper reality, a reality that hints at the naturalness of death, a reality that links life and death in a greater whole. It is this realization that allows them to step beyond their pain and continue to live themselves. I don't think there's a more powerful way to say exactly that. Those of us who have loved and have lost, the way we live with that and move forward with that pain is there is truly a teaching. There's an understanding that comes about somehow it's all tied up together. I don't know anything about it, but when my father died, when I watched him die, from the moment he was still gasping for air and the next few moments when he was dead, there was a new a new reality. Instantly there's this you are linked now to an understanding that there he he wasn't gone for me. So what does that mean? But he's dead. But he's not gone for me. So what, what what's that? Like so you start to understand and experience a relationship differently to death in terms of, I now have a link across that line. I don't know what it is. I know nothing about it. But I know, I feel, I experience the absolute intermingling of life and death now right? in a way that I could not possibly have done just to that same point, I remember um, asking my mother, who probably outlived the most everybody she knew, um, I said, well, how do you deal with it when your family, your friends, and I was around her, and she just looked at me, and she just kind of smiled, and she said, that's life. Yeah, yeah. That she understood that. She understood that. That that's life, because her understanding of life had evolved in a way that I think Rami is addressing. Um, and I've seen people grow more and more comfortable with the idea of their own mortality the more people are on the other side of that line now. I mean, I know even for me, I, you know, 
I sense it. And so I can imagine once all my friends, you know, I should live long enough to, you know, have a lot of people I know. Be but, but having been a rabbi, you can imagine how many people I have on the other side of that line that I have loved and have let go of. And so there's this whole congregation that, that I know I will, yeah. you know, I don't get it. I don't know what it means, but I know that I feel it differently now. Ruben? I, uh, had a, I had a non-Jewish friend who uh, asked why is the Jewish God such an angry and vengeful God? And there's no easy answer to that. Uh, it's, the question really is like, why did you stop being the one? God is not an angry and vengeful God, but you can't answer it in one, in one sentence. It's a complicated thing. Well, that's the part that I have difficulty to delve all my life, to deal with the fear of God. If you only go from fear, because to be the opposite of love is fear. It's not hate. So there's a, I have that, that dichotomy in me that is always fighting with we need to have a fear of God. All right, so we've had this conversation before. I'm happy to have it again, not now, because remember, fear is awe in Hebrew. It's not fear. We've had this conversation. I'm happy to keep having it, but it's not fear like I'm afraid that way. I know fear can be very damaging, but in Hebrew, yirah is the same word for awe. The, the awe of how big it all is and the what happens inside of me because now I feel so small that is related to fear in Hebrew. But it is not, but you can't take the awe part out of it in Hebrew. It's like not love versus fear. That is not the dichotomy in, um, in Hebrew. What I'm trying to say is that we've been brought up as a child, the fear of God. This is how we would be. Right, but I would say that's not Jewish. That's not Jewish, that's Christian. That's Christian, that's not Jewish. Awe of the Holy One, 100%. Does there, is there some fear that comes along with that? I should hope so. Um, but, but that's not, we were, we were not taught, you better fear, you do this because you better fear God. That is not a Jewish teaching. God will punish you. Um, this is from this week's news about awe. Uh, there's news from science that you may have heard about the possibility of 100,000 other universes mm -hmm. in addition to ours. Yeah. And that sounds awesome. There you go. <laughs> and ours is pretty big. Yeah. Um, so I just want to, I'm going to close our time with um, the words from Rabbi Shefa Gold. Just, just a couple, just one paragraph. When I receive this story as a blessing, she writes, Nadavana Vihu's death becomes a demonstration of the power of transformation. I look for the place within me that is willing to offer up everything directly from the impulse of the heart without being asked, without conforming to what is deemed normal. The fire that I give seems strange because it is unmediated by religious convention. I give the strange raw essence of my passion, my fire, and then I am transformed through my giving. God takes me rather than my gift. And isn't this just what I had intended? I ask to be taken, used, transformed by the force that is constantly recreating the world. I surrender self, form, knowledge, even religion, that I might be returned to my divine essence. Wow. Wow.
So, Susan, it was my promise to answer exactly your point, and I said I wanted to tell you, show you how Rabbi Shefa Gold goes there, that, that out of their love and exuberance, they got exactly what they intended, which was to be consumed, to be taken, to be completely used by that force in the universe and recreated. In that sense, their little s self was consumed and fell away. So that capital S could emerge, capital self could emerge in a transformative experience. So for her, she takes it as, as she takes everything as a metaphor, but not, okay, it's just a metaphor. A metaphor that is deeply and powerfully truthful, right, and enlightening for us. When, when are we really ready to surrender self? Really. We say we want to serve, but when, I mean, that's my language. It's just, it's my life, my world, whatever. But think of your own art. Think, you know, when are we really ready to surrender the self in order for that amazing creative force in the universe to transform us into a gift? You have given us a birthday present. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel that this session has just been wonderful. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.